Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The road for Rob Hodling to secure the Independent Party nomination for governor received some scrutiny, leading to an unsuccessful court challenge by Republican candidate Bob Stefanowski to keep Hodling and his running mate Chip Beckett off the ballot. Today, where we live, Rob Hodling joins us to explain why he's running. We hear the differences between him and the two major party candidates. Historically, independent party candidates have garnered just a small minority of votes here in Connecticut, but the unaffiliated continue to be the largest and growing population of voters in our state. Now, what questions do you have for our state's independent gubernatorial candidate? Our conversation isn't limited to our live radio stream. You can also watch online at Connecticut Public's website, Facebook page, or on YouTube. Or you can call in with your question. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or you can find us again on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Rob Hodeling, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Lucy. So some of our listeners and viewers, it might be the first time that they're learning about you and, and why you're running. So let's start first to, to let our listeners know more about your background, you know, how you ended up in Connecticut, and what do you do? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm a 25-year resident of Connecticut. I, uh, I moved here right out of high school. So I'm actually, uh, it's, it's kind of funny, my father is during the dot-com era. And uh, my father calls me up and says, hey, what are you doing? It was the high school year of my graduation. And he says, I started, uh, I got some investment and you should come on down and learn how to code. So I'm like, okay. So I hopped in a car, moved into his house in Westport and uh, I was coding uh, JavaScript. It doesn't matter what the software (laughs) is, but the point was it was good times. It was fun. We were competing with uh, two very large uh, companies, IBM and Oracle. I didn't know what that meant at the time. And uh, which meant we we're going to lose. Uh, but it was a great experience. And at that time, I was also attending uh, University of Connecticut, where I met my wife. Uh, and we've, you know, she was just the most beautiful engineer. And I just haven't left Connecticut since. And so uh, over the years, I've lived in Manchester, East Hartford, stores naturally, and then Bridgeport. And now I live in Cheshire. And so we have four beautiful kids, uh, three boys, one girl. And you're a banker? I am a banker, yeah. So uh, I'm actually a technology leader in the banking space. So uh, essentially, I'm a senior vice president at at Webster Bank now, uh, but I've had a broad experience in finance. So I've worked in wholesale credit transformation. That might not mean a lot to people out there, but I've also, I currently do what's called retail online banking. So if you go and you want to log in and, you know, open up a checking account or savings account, things like that. My group would handle the digital piece of it. And I work with other bank leaders to make sure that your money movement occurs if you try to pay a bill or whatever. So uh, very important stuff. Um, and I'm really proud uh, of the organization I work for and, uh, and them giving me the opportunity to even be here. So. And so everyone's wondering, why are you running for governor? 
Actually, I think my situation might be a little bit different than my competitors. I was asked to run. I really wasn't thinking about it. But uh, I had sort of, you know, talking. Yeah, I'm sure I could run the state better than <laughs> than Governor Lamont or better than uh, Mr. Stefanowski. And uh, essentially, the chairman of the party, independent party. So I had left the Republicans. I, I was a little frustrated with everything going on. And I became an unaffiliated, uh, which is like most of our population in Connecticut. Uh, but then I met the chairman of the independent party. And he said, Rob, you know, we have eight people who want this line. And they've traditionally cross-endorsed. He goes, including the governor and, and Bob Stefanowski, but we believe you're the best one to represent the party for various reasons. Um, and so some of those reasons very quickly are um, I come from a broad background, not just from finance, but from gunshot detection, physical security. I've done patent and trademark search. I've done food automation. I've done concedo gaming. <laughs> so people go, wow. And then I come from a very multicultural background. My father's Dutch. My mother is uh, Liberian. My wife is Puerto Rican. So I just feel like, you know, so I think that the leadership of the party felt that I represented a lot of different things. Um, and then also the ability for me, I guess, to relate to people uh, and communicate. And they felt that I should run. But I didn't know I'd get into the quagmire uh, that occurred with the lawsuits. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was not on the plan for yeah. me. So. so we'll get to that. But when we hear about your background, right. you have no experience in governance. And so I'm wondering if you can talk more about why people think that you could lead the state as governor. That is a good uh, good question. So a couple things about that. I don't have candidate experience prior to this, but I have campaign experience. So in my 20s, I was actually part of the Young Dems of Southern Fairfield. Um, and that organization was actually led by Allison Malloy, the niece of Governor Malloy. Uh, he was the mayor of Stanford at the time. So I had contributed. So in my 20s, I was part of the Democratic Party. Uh, so unlike my competitors, I've been part of both parties. So at the time, I was in what's called data and strategy. And I saw from the inside what a gubernatorial campaign looks like. And it was a successful campaign. Malloy ended up winning. I think that was 2010 uh, when he won. And, um, and I, in my own little way, I would gather up uh, data from um, essentially voter lists from all the town uh, and city councils. I'd load it into a database. It wasn't readily online like it is now. And then I would apply, you know, little algorithms and say, this is where we should spend our time, money, and effort. So, but now people could say, well, that doesn't make you a good candidate per se. What would make you um, more uh, qualified to lead the state? And I would argue that given my background, I've been a proven problem solver at high levels of scale. Right now, I lead systems that handle billions of dollars in money movement. Um, so it's other people's money, not my own. I may not be a, a multimillionaire, but I'm definitely an innovator and a listener and a collaborator. I believe I stand the best chance of taking the, the best ideas from both parties. Unlike my competitors who are beholden to the left or the right, I'm the only one who can break the blue-red divide and take the best. And actually being part of both those parties makes it even better. So a lot of my platform are really beholden to the best ideas, not the parties. Hmm. You're hearing Rob Hodling here, Where We Live. He's the Independent Party's gubernatorial candidate. You can join us if you have a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. You know, it's, I think some people like to hear that you, you're, you see yourself as um, somebody that can take the middle ground and not go extreme right or extreme left. But you are a minor party candidate, 
in a political system that favors the two-party system, including the money involved. And so what can you tell our listeners about um, how they should view your candidacy as credible? Yeah, I, <clears throat> once again, I would argue that the independent party, although I'm on the independent party line, we actually represent the unaffiliated the most. So mm-hmm. most listeners and viewers and voters may not understand this, but 41% of the electorate, over 900,000 people, are registered unaffiliated. They're unaffiliated for a reason. It means they do not want to align to the Republicans or the Democrats. There's a reason for that. And that means they control the fate of the election, not the Democrats and Republicans. So really, if the unaffiliated say, we like Rob Holding better, I win. It's that simple. So folks really need to understand that. Um, I would also add this, that most unaffiliated have something very unfair from the two-party system that they don't even recognize right now. We have what's called closed primaries. So the unaffiliated are taxpayers. Taxpayer money is spent to, to conduct and facilitate the primaries by the Democrats and Republicans. So you have 900,000 people who pay for something who can't contribute. So I'm a big fan from the third party system of, uh, and I'm championing open primaries. So if you're registered unaffiliated, you'll be able to select one of which primaries that you'd like to vote in. That is critical because out of those primaries determines who gets to the general election. And people may not understand why electoral reform is so important. And I'll just stop on this point. It's foundational. Why? Because you can't even bring new ideas to the table. Traditionally, third-party candidates are the ones who bring the most progressive or newest ideas to the table, not the major parties. And I would also, and I I love my uh, uh, lieutenant governor uh, uh, partner, uh, Dr. Stuart Chip Beckett, he informed me, and I didn't know this, Abraham Lincoln was a third-party candidate. I don't know if most viewers recognize that, but think about that. One of our greatest, if not greatest, presidents was a third-party candidate. Again, you can join us if you have a question for Rob Hodeling here where we live, the Independent Party gubernatorial candidate at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So let's talk about uh, how uh, you got the uh, nomination through the uh, Connecticut Independent Party. Uh, in some ways, uh, the the fact that Republican candidate Bob Stefanowski uh, tried to uh, to boot you off of the ballot um, after this uh, tie uh, was broken by the independent party chair. In some ways, it helped raise uh, your um, awareness of the listener, the listeners and voters that you're running for governor. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, this challenge. Of course, it was unsuccessful. But in terms of when we think about the two party system and choice, uh, you know, the move to try to get you off the ballot. Yeah, I uh, first of all, and thank you for asking, rewinding back to the caucus, um, no one would have imagined it would be a tie. I think most people thought, oh, he's spending a lot of money. He has a lot of money. He spent a lot of money. And I get it. If I'm in this position, I'd say, you know what? I deserve this. Why? Because the past two or three Republican governor candidates had received that line. So they felt entitled to it. But prior to me, there wasn't really a strong... Uh, governor candidate that's actually an independent party member running. So it made sense. Let's cross indoors. But the party made clear from the beginning that they wanted their own gubernatorial candidate. And that was me. Uh, And they asked me to run again. Uh, So it's like sort of stand down. But you know what? 
he galvanized not just me in my campaign as well as the party, but other the general public who are part of the independent party. And they realized, wait, I'm not just an affiliate, I'm an independent party. I'm going to come vote. And we had a tie. So the thing that most folks may not understand is, although it didn't say anything about a tie because nobody imagined that, it still mentioned, the bylaws are the it I'm referring to, mentioned that the state central committee would make the determination of breaking the tie. They had already endorsed me two nights before. So naturally, that means that there would be the tie-breaking vote. But then after that, of course, for Stefanowski to pursue removing the party entirely from the line, I don't think most people understand what that challenge might have occurred, what that would have done. Essentially, that would have put the entire party uh, off of the ballot, myself and Dr. Stuart Beckett included. But then that also would have removed the third largest party in the entire state from the election cycle. Based on the citizens' election uh, program, the state match program, you need to get at least 10% to even get state match. And it's based on your last run. That would have put the party eight years behind if you would have won. Is that good for democracy of Connecticut? That's not the type of state I want to live in. Again, you can join us if you have a question for Rob Hodling, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Barbara is calling in from Glastonbury. Barbara, what's your question? My question for uh, Mr. Hodling is, I I live in Glastonbury, we have a great education system, but I've served on the board in uh, in Hartford, a number of organizations, and I've seen what's happened to kids, and that the education isn't as good, and and across the state it's that way. We've got great systems, and we've got systems that are really challenging, and I was wondering, what do we need to do to get everybody on a great playing field so there's more people that want to stay here and work here? Yes, that's my question. Well, thanks, Barbara. I think that's a great question. A couple things. One, uh, if I understand this right, uh, Connecticut spends about $5 billion a year, the state, on education. And we do have one of the highest ranking school systems in the country, uh, which is, I believe, eighth or ninth rank, something like this. But we also have, if not the worst uh, achievement gap, definitely bottom five. And it's a problem. And a lot of it's tied to the wrong metrics. I th- my, my personal belief and the campaign's belief is that, for example, our educational cost sharing or ECS funding model needs to be restructured. I'm one of the few candidates who's actually taken a deep look at that with my team and believe that it's currently based on income and property taxes rather than on actual student achievement, which is really de- mostly determined from classroom size and student-teacher ratios. The better that ratio, the more attention to each child, the more the child progresses in schooling. And then augmenting that with additional forms of education. I think that, and and I've heard uh, both Bob and Ned go back and forth about uh, pitting parents against teachers. I think that's just, you know, that whole debate is just, it's, it's, it's it's a falsehood. I think from the beginning, parents and teachers have always been in coordination. I just think that we need to take a look at, and and you'll see our educational plan is coming out today. We're publishing it today. We believe that we should have more of a county-based regional delivery of services for certain things to take the burden off of teachers. Certain areas, for example, RECs, Regional Education Councils. For example, there's CREC in Hartford. They deliver training for teachers. They deliver, uh, they, they maintain magnet schools. It's more of a, at a county level, a regional distribution level. That unburdens some school systems. And then we have the concept of COGS, 
uh, which are essentially councils of government, they did, uh, at a more regional level, disperse infrastructure in, in schooling. Again, that would help schools focus on educating kids. Uh, one last area that I strongly believe in, in terms of education to put ourselves in the right playing field, is just the focus. I know we talk a lot about STEM, and I am from technology, but I've heard a new one called STEAM. I would add that arts right in the middle. So science, technology, arts, engineering, and math. We need to have STEAM. And lastly, uh, financial literacy. That's a big one for me. I think that there's a huge gap uh, and we can see it. And uh, coming from the finance world, I get it. But do, do the, does the average person even understand what a checking account, a savings account is, what a mortgage, what a, what a line of credit is? Those types of concepts should be sprinkled in over time, sort of like language arts. It should be financial education. Once you add all of these various, uh, uh, you unburden the teachers and you add uh, this type of uh, approach to the curriculum, I think that will be an even better school system. And then we won't see the tale of two cities we have in Connecticut, where Westport has a 1% dropout rate, but a few towns over Bridgeport has a 25% dropout rate. We need to do more for our kids. We'll be breaking soon, but I wanted to go back to something you said about a regional county approach. <clears throat> Excuse me. But that's not how Connecticut uh, municipal governments are set up. Uh, there's a reason they call Connecticut the land of steady habits. Uh, you know, is there buy-in from cities and towns, especially the suburbs, uh, where um, people um, that are, are living, uh, you know, higher uh, middle class uh, to wealthy, where they want to be collaborating with the poor district next door. I mean, that is a real problem in the state. And so how do you get that buy-in if you're governor? Yeah, so I think that's the thing. And I also hear that uh, from our competitors that, my competitors, that, oh, I can sort of tell a town what to do. No, you have to be in partnership with the town, right? And again, I stand the best as a moderate as a middle, as an independent, working regardless of the election of that mayor or town council, I can go to those folks and say, listen, let's work in partnership. And now from this point about towns working together from an educational basis. So going back to my Bridgeport, uh, Westport example, there are some incentives for Westport to help Bridgeport. But when you really get down to it, do they have to? No, they don't. It's just out of the goodness of Westport's heart that they would want to help Bridgeport, right? Um, but the point is, if you raise it up a level and say, and you show a cost-benefit analysis, it's more costly if we don't work together. And you have better benefits overall from a society if we do work together. And you incentivize those mayors at a regional level. Not that you're taking away any character from Westport, or not that you're applying uh, what you're you know, sort of telling Bridgeport what you're going to do per se. What you're saying is, hey, everybody. We believe that when you raise it up one level and do regional delivery of services, it benefits everybody. And that's one of the key things to my educational mm -hmm. plan. You mentioned character, and that's something that uh, suburbs, uh, some towns, bring up related to the push to have more multifamily units, uh, apartments, affordable housing. But what are we really talking about here when we're talking about character? Is that what people are worried about, or is it the fact that they don't want somebody that doesn't look like them, that doesn't come from their, their economic backgrounds, living next to them in their town? Yeah, I think there's, you know, we can't get away from that. I think there's a little bit of that. Look, even I've probably experienced it once or twice in my life. It just happens, right? I, I You know, I moved to Cheshire out of Bridgeport. I mean, it, you know, but of course, they don't know your background until they, oh, okay, wait, you're a banker, okay. But it, it's, it shouldn't be that way. 
But I will say it's it's a minority. I, I think majority of people still want the same things. They want a good school system. They want safety. They want a great neighborhood. They want beauty. Connecticut's beautiful. They want to maintain that. So I think folks are concerned. And at the debate, you sort of heard this joke. I just I wanted to laugh where <laughs> skyscrapers next to Cape Cod's. But the point is that developers have too much power and control in terms of affordable housing in the 830G. Um, uh, 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 statutes and all that. So I think what we need to do is level the playing field. I do believe that certain towns want a vibrant downtown and it makes sense to build your multifamily units there. But if the town says, you know what, we think it might make more sense to put a multifamily unit elsewhere. Clearly, the folks who come and, and live in those multifamily units are typically it's affordable housing. They make less, they earn less, but it's about equity. It's about um, equality. It's about giving people um, the same opportunities. I think everybody wants that in the state of Connecticut, not just the select few. Mm. I definitely want to ask you some follow-up on your comments about 830G, but we need to take a break. Again, I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to Where We Live. Independent Party gubernatorial candidate Rob Hodling is my in-studio guest today. He's here to answer your questions. We're live on the radio, online at Connecticut Public's website, Facebook page, or on YouTube. You can add your questions there or just call in 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. About 33 days to go before the general election in Connecticut, November 8th. Today, we wrap up our series talking with Connecticut's gubernatorial candidates on November's ballot. What questions do you have for Rob Hodling, the Independent Party's candidate for governor? We're live on the radio, online at Connecticut Public's website, Facebook page, or on YouTube. Add your questions there or call in 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or again, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, before we take another call, you mentioned 830G. This was a, a law that requires uh, developers to, to follow certain uh, guidelines before uh, bringing in uh, certain projects and allowing affordable housing. You, you'd mentioned that um, developers have too much power. So 
unpack that a little bit more for us? Because there is a, an affordability housing crisis in our state. Yeah. There is a lack of affordable housing in particular communities. Um, some advocates would say, you know, it's not just about talking about putting this, these units in cities, right. but making sure that people have access to housing where they live, working families, working professionals. So tell us more about how you would fix this issue. Yeah, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is, uh, you know, the 10% requirement. There's this whole debate about, you know, one or two acres and what are we doing there? But fundamentally, what is it about? It's about access. And so in giving opportunities to folks to live in the towns they work. And I think we should do everything we can to make that happen. So one of the things is, you know, and I've heard Bob Stefanowski talk about repealing 830G. I just think that's not possible to get that through the legislature and then what? Put what in, in its place. I think we have to restructure it. And really what, what I believe is we need to level the playing field between developers and towns. Towns want more say. Developers are trying to do the right thing, just like towns want to do the right thing. Towns are listening to the people who want to live there. If you're already working there and you want to live in that town, I think you should be able to participate with that town's leadership and say, hey, what are you doing? And work in partnership. So one of the key things that I was looking at is... Um, and I understand even the governor was here some weeks ago where those plans are shared with the with the administration. Now, I become governor. I would do the same. I would take a good look at it. But I would make it an emphasis. I would make it a priority. I don't know if it's really a priority for our current administration. I don't get the sense it is. They say a lot, a lot of nice words, but where where's the action? How many uh, uh, towns have they met? Have they gone to every single town who doesn't have a plan yet? If I understand this right, 50% of our towns haven't even submitted a plan. Is that either just lack of priority or a lack of respect? I don't know what's going on there. Or maybe but, both. Or maybe both, right. So, But I definitely think that we need to take a look at that. Under my leadership, I would make a commitment to meet with all the various towns uh, and then put together, work with the legislation, put together a bill that would restructure it to make sure that we have the proper access for everyone to get um, those opportunities to live in those towns. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Let's talk about the economy. Uh, we know that the inflation rate is high. Uh, people, depending on their household income, may, may be living paycheck, paycheck to paycheck. Uh, people are noticing their, that um, the amount of uh, disposable income they have is uh, much less than what it used to be. And so what are your plans uh, to help uh, Connecticut residents uh, as we see this inflation rate high? Uh, some economists say we're in a recession now, even though it hasn't been officially called. Uh, and so I'm curious your thoughts, especially because uh, you come from the private sector. Yeah, and I think that there's sometimes a misunderstanding of inflation, what state governments can actually do to control it. Uh, you know, inflation essentially is too much demand for the supply. Mm -hmm. and, and that typically affects things like food, fuel, um, toiletries, various types of goods and services. And the, I should let, try to break this down a little bit, unpack and what we can actually do to make long-term fixes and improvements. But there's a couple ways to affect uh, inflation. One is with monetary policy, essentially making um, money more expensive, which lowers the... So when the Fed, who actually controls inflation, and the way they do this is they... Uh, increase interest rates, which takes money out of the system, it cools the economy, and it makes banks like Webster or others uh, lend less. That makes money less available, which cools it down, 
that means that demand drops generally. So, but from a state level, what can you do? There's fiscal policy. There's a couple ways of addressing that. There is either raising taxes, again, to cool off people from wanting to spend, which lowers demand. It balances it with supply, which would drop inflation. The other way is really to control your spending. That's a whole nother thing. So that would possibly mean cutting certain services. So there's a different things. But then yet there's another way, which is really supply at the end of the day. If we can increase our production of certain uh, impactful uh, 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 goods and services or goods and services impacted by inflation most and build safeguards there, that might be another way to fight inflation. So I understand that we have a gas tax holiday, essentially. It's going to be expiring in November. There's a, a lot of debate about extending it. I think we ought to extend it, first of all, to give people that relief. But we also ought to look at other safeguards that we can for fuel prices, which affect a lot of our transportation and uh, our working force. Uh, but then also I'd look at food. We, we come from a great state. We, we have a lot of farms. We, have, we just don't manufacture enough here. We don't wear, warehouse enough here. And if we could offset some of that in a regional-based manner, we may also insulate ourselves a little bit more from inflation. So those are just a couple different scenarios that we can do. You've also called attention to Connecticut not being seen as business-friendly. Uh, you have some proposals to help attract more businesses uh, to our state. I'm wondering if you can uh, briefly lay out some of that for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, and, and I've, I've been a, um, I've started up a few businesses myself, and I've also worked at very large corporations as well as small startups and, and family-owned businesses. Everyone's feeling it. The cost of doing business, we're just basically unfriendly. And I've heard Stefanowski now take it. I think he took a look at my plan and saw the CNBC rankings I put right on my plan on my website. But we have an F. We have Fs and Ds on our report card, according to CNBC, uh, when it comes to things like uh, the, uh, the economy and then it comes to like infrastructure. So my plan, basically, let me summarize it, is this. We will address cost of doing business and the cost of living. A couple of ways that we will be addressing cost of doing business right now are business personal property taxes. We're looking at eliminating those or dramatically reducing them. Uh, our de default position would be complete elimination. Another one would be motor vehicle taxes that businesses spend on. If we can eliminate those, we need to go from, and I want to be clear about this, right now Connecticut, a majority of its revenues are based on assets, having something or being something. I believe that our state should be based on use or utilization, buying something, doing something, rather than just being something. It's a fundamental shift. And really what would occur is if you do less, you pay less. You do more, you pay more. That's far more fair, in my opinion. That's one of the things our economic plan would look mm -hmm. at doing. There's a, a story happening uh, this week where Governor Lamont and other Connecticut leaders are putting pressure on M&T Bank after its merger with People's Bank. Again, uh, 325 workers have been laid off, another 333 expected in the future. I should say M&T Bank says it's also planning to hire for another 350 jobs. As governor, how would you handle that situation? What control does a governor have over what a private business is doing, including acquisition and their business plan moving forward? Right. And personally, I feel it's very reactionary. It's not like it wasn't. And look, we're going through a bank merger right now, right? And M&T and Peoples, everyone knew it. And so to, you have to have trust. It's the private sector. But if there were certain incentives delivered to M&T 
and or certain commitments by M&T for employment. I believe if I heard the number right, they are intended to maintain a certain level of, of set of employees, 300 or 1,000. And I, I'm well aware, too, that uh, Governor Lamont met with the uh, CEO of M&T either today or yesterday. Um, as governor, for, for me, especially understanding the private sector, especially uh, banking and finance, I would work with them and say, hey, what can we do uh, to make a smooth transition? What can we do to uh, ensure ahead of proactively, not reactively? Um, and then also just, you know, it, it, with the attorney general, even there are a lot of lawsuits, if I understand this right, flowing into the attorney general. I would take a look at that and go, what is the common thread? What is the common theme? Rather than being a hammer, be more of a partner and s- with the business community and say, okay, where can we get others to maybe help and smooth this transition? So it's not all just on the local environment and specifically what M&T are doing. Uh, we have a listener who tweeted uh, in a state where um, we saw Newtown happen, and this uh, December will be 10 years since that uh, tragic shooting at the at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Uh, this state has an assault weapon ban, also tougher gun laws than we see in other states. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts uh, on uh, police uh, in schools? Well, this is a really challenging thing. I, I and you mentioned Newtown. A very quick story. I founded a company called Verbi. It was a gunshot detection. It was really the first um, to be installed. No human intervention whatsoever. I repurposed um, military grade uh, gunshot detectors that are used by our special forces overseas, and I miniaturized them and I made them look like smoke detectors. It, it, through that process, it really taught me a lot about school safety and various solutions, what I would call non-intrusive school solutions. We can't turn our schools into fortresses. That is not good for education, but we have to make sure, ensure that our students, teachers, and administrators feel safe. There are various ways of doing that. In high crime communities, I understand the concept of a school resource officer, SRO. In fact, I've spoken with a number of them across the state. They often have the same opinion, which is, listen, we're there to help protect the kids, but they want to be in the background. They want to be respected. When they're too visible, it actually affects, negatively affects the psychology of the school and the students from what I've seen and gathered. Um, so I think that we need to take a look at the roots of crime and what makes essentially a community and a school um, crime-ridden and unsafe and really comes back to economic opportunity and what our education plan is and talking about school uh, uh, student-teacher ratios and schoolroom class sizes. If we can make the right economic changes, we make the right educational changes, safety in the, the community around it should improve. Crime should come down. But we also have to support our officers. They have a very difficult job, one of the most in the whole state, as well as the teachers in urban communities. And we need to recruit better. We need to retain them better. We need to give them, um, I would call it hazard pay or just bonuses or whatever we need to do to be competitive to keep them there. And that is critical uh, both for our students as well as for the community around them. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 if you have a question for Rob Hodeling, the Independent Party gubernatorial candidate here where we live. We just have a few minutes. Uh, I wanted to paraphrase uh, from uh, someone who called in, but we're having an issue uh, hearing from the caller. In terms of your position on unranked choice voting, we talked about uh, closed primaries uh, you know, being an issue. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan 
of ranked choice voting. Uh, in fact, think about this. Bob Stefanowski won because of ranked choice voting in the independent party. And then I came and defeated Bob Stefanowski with the same mechanism of ranked choice voting in independent party. It works. Essentially what it is, is instead of you having one and only vote, it eliminates the spoiler vote concept. And it's, you know what, I'll rank them. And what people believe is that if you actually have ranked choice voting, more people would vote for a third party candidate because they realize I'm not throwing my vote away. It essentially is an instant runoff. So I would rank Rob Hodling first, right? And then Governor Lamont or Stefanowski second or third. And then, well, whoever gets the least without 50% win, that last person's votes roll up to the next remaining two, for example. And then you would re-vote immediately. It's an instant recount. It makes it greater for everybody. And if I understand this right, Governor Lamont and the Griebel Frank for Connecticut Party committed to introducing ranked choice voting bill at the next legislative session. So if I win the governorship, I would also meet that commitment of introducing ranked choice voting because it's the right thing to do. We don't have that system right now. Some people might be listening and say, well, you are the third party candidate. If I vote for you, am I throwing out my vote? How would you respond? I would say no. Once again, I'd go back to where we started. 41% of the electorate are unaffiliated for a reason. They are not Democrats. They are not Republicans. They control the fate. If the majority of the unaffiliated vote for me, it is not a throwaway vote. I win. It's that simple. So also, what could we do? Imagine, what has partisan politics really gotten us in the past two decades? You could argue we have a uniparty in the past two decades, right? Every senior role, highest office in the entire state are controlled by the Democrats. Are things better now? Think about it four years ago, eight, 12 years ago. Are things better for you? Just the same or worse? Clearly, I think things are showing we're not going the right direction. CNBC by the stats, we have the worst achievement gap. We have bottom five uh, taxation, bottom five affordability. We have people fleeing the state in terms of retirees, graduates. All of that is due to a single party having control. Now, I understand the Democrats have some great ideas. That's great. But we need competition. Last time I checked, and I say this, and Lucy, in, in all honesty, name me an industry or anything where less choice is better. Well, you might say, come to my show. That <laughs> You don't want any other show. I get that. But, but outside of your show, is there anything else anywhere in life where you say less choice is better? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Can I, I just, before we run out of time, sure. you know, everyone talks about what's bad, especially when you're running for public office, but you've lived in Connecticut for a number of years. What's good about Connecticut? What makes you stay here and raise your family? Uh, people often say, well, retirees leave. Right. Retirees will leave regardless because they want to live somewhere warm. They don't want to deal with, with uh, unpacking uh, and dealing with snow. That's yes. what we hear from people. And so I'm wondering if you can say, what's good about Connecticut? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer what's good about Connecticut, but I want get, to get a chance to say why people are leaving because I have one radical thought. It's radical, but it's new. I believe retirees, people who've lived or worked in the state for 10 years or more deserve a defined benefit. They should have a public option. I've spoken to so many seniors who said they would not flee the state if their greatest expense is medical expense. If they had a public option, 65 or over, 10 plus years live or work here, they would stay. In fact, I have seniors out of state who'd say they would move here. It's not about heat. Don't get me wrong. I love Florida. It's very nice. But they would stay here. Now, what's great about Connecticut? Why have I stayed? I think Connecticut has great people. I believe Connecticut has beauty. I believe Connecticut has a great schooling system. We just have a terrible achievement gap. We fix our achievement gap. We're one of the best in the nation. We have a very educated 
powerful workforce. Those are a lot of great things. And of course, proximity to New York. But I believe we need to invest in our cities to make them vibrant. Have people come here, make it a, a not just a, a work destination, but a cultural destination. We have all the right bones. We just have to build out Connecticut a little bit better. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, the two segments uh, went quickly. It was a pleasure to hear from you, uh, to learn about your campaign, and good luck to you in about 33 days uh, on Election Day. Rob Hodelin, again, is the Independent Party gubernatorial candidate. Thank you for coming in today. Thanks a lot, Lucy. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Up next, we're going to get analysis from longtime politics and government reporter Ken Dixon, who writes for Hearst Connecticut Media. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. You just heard Rob Hodling on the show, the independent party candidate running for governor. This November, he will be on the ballot. Candidates Bob Stefanowski will have the Republican line and incumbent Ned Lamont will have three ballot lines after being endorsed by the Democratic, Working Families and Frank Griebel parties. Now for some analysis on Hodling's campaign and the governor's race, joining us now in studio is Ken Dixon, who's the politics and government reporter for Hearst Connecticut Media. That includes the New Haven Register and the Connecticut Post. Ken, good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Sure, Lucy. Just take me over the coals now. <laughs> so I just want to hear your hot takes here on Rob Hodling's campaign and what he shared today. Who's a more attractive candidate? Um, the problem is going to be getting the numbers out for him. Um, but yeah, he had he had a little David and Goliath battle getting the nomination. And uh, he's thoroughly briefed. He's got good experience. Um, there's no money. This might be the only time that people see him on TV um, for the next, what is it, 35 days, did you say? I said 33. Maybe I'm 30, wrong. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about his approach. Um, he mentioned unaffiliated. Again, and you know this, I think the 930,000 unaffiliated voters in our state, he, it sounds like he's really appealing to them. I'm wondering if you can break that down for us when we think about uh, this uh, upcoming election. The governor's races have been close in recent years um, in terms of, you know, where will he be pulling votes from? Um, yeah, Lamont won by like 44,000 um, <laughs> with all these extra lines, uh, you know, his second term uh, over COVID. Um, uh, he's got um, a decisive advantage. Um, unaffiliated, um, looking at the polls, it seems like they're, they're breaking um, more Republican than Democrat. Um, then you have to look in, to like, who's in the independent party? Is it, is it, 
disenchanted Republicans, disenchanted Democrats, and I'm not sure mm-hmm. how that breaks breaks down. And it sounds like Chip Beckett, his running mate, and Rob Hodling were once Republicans, so would they be considered the disenchanted Republicans who've now um, found themselves in the independent party? Um, Rob gave some money to Malloy in 2010, um, and he, he was talking about being um, in the Young Demo- Democrats back in the day. Uh, so I think he's got some uh, bona fides on that. Um, he's got some inter- a lot of interesting ideas, um, and an uh, essentially unaffiliated governor coming into the uh, <laughs> the volcano of the general assembly would be, you know, interesting. And uh, it would be up to the minority and the majority to to try to work together with him. Um, it, it, it could be interesting if he won, but the odds are way against it. So you were able to hear the interview and, and some of the issues that he raised. What stood out to you? Um, he's super knowledgeable. He's uh, got a scope of experience that arguably, well, I mean, the governor's you know got four more years on him, but uh, Stefanowski was a corporate guy spent the last four years as some kind of consultant that he won't tell any anybody about except he made you know 30 million dollars or something um family guy uh moved to cheshire he knows about the suburbs i think he's a little pollyannish about um uh, the affordable housing and educational cost sharing battles that have been going on you know for decades now but i mean arguably maybe that's what we need somebody you know an outsider (laughs) To work their will, I don't know. Isn't that how Ned Lamont uh, marketed himself or promoted himself as a business guy coming into state government when he ran? Yeah, well, he he also had the the war in 2006 that he used to make uh, Joe Lieberman become an independent, you know, um, eponymous political party of his own there. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the education cost sharing grant because you've been covering the Capitol for many years so you understand this better uh, than the average listener and so when you think about <laughs> when you think about um, his ideas uh, of saying that you know it's not the way it's structured is not working so can you break it down for us on, on what he means there? Um, well it's true I mean the proof's in the pudding I mean uh, Look at Westport. You don't even have to go to Westport. Look at Fairfield right next door to to Bridgeport. Um, Rob said something uh, during that debate uh, with the governor and Stefanowski about paying teachers, urban teachers, and urban police more. And I think that's that's the kind of carrot that you need uh, uh, to attract people to the inner city um, because there's... I mean, I know teachers in Bridgeport, and uh, they're they're totally dedicated, and there's there's heartbreak everywhere. There are dysfunctional families and uh, kids at risk, and um, you know, more money might uh, a, a teacher in Bridgeport looks. You look in Greenwich; it's like the, the parents are totally involved, the kids are uh, uh, arguably better trained, and they're paying more money. It's like you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. Mm. Uh, so we've got a little more than a month left. Uh, what do you expect to see in this uh, gubernatorial race? Uh, I think uh, Bob Stefanowski, the Republican, is starting a bus tour around the state. Uh, Ned Lamont's only doing two debates. And Rob Hodling is trying to get as much face time as he can. Uh, well, you you said it. <laughs> um, 
Uh, Rob's, uh, he's going over to the Capitol right now to talk about education. Um, he doesn't have any money at all. I mean, it's like, I think he's got, he loaned, he loaned his campaign like 40 grand. Um, and I don't, we've got um, campaign finance uh, deadlines are coming up in the next few days. We'll get a better idea. But um, getting the message out, uh, it's going to be really hard for him to break through um, Lamont, the super PACs, Stefanowski, the super PACs um, in the final stretch. Yeah. What are you hearing from residents that you've encountered throughout the state when they look at this race? Again, some people would say that the pandemic may have been the best thing for Governor Lamont, considering he was pretty unpopular and there were some missteps. I have to say his tolls, people remember, before the pandemic. Others, uh, he's gotten a lot of criticism about um, some of the restrictions uh, during covid but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Connecticut uh, fared a lot better related to the way uh, this public health crisis was handled versus other states. And so uh, thinking about what residents want to hear from in terms of these candidates. Well, what have they what has he done for them lately? You know, uh, in COVID's almost old news now is becoming mm-hmm. endemic, although I wore my mask into the into the building here today. So I'm sure everybody felt slightly safer. Um Stefanowski's going to try to go to more to the middle, and um, the pressure's really on him. Ned's, you know, holding serve, uh, and really the the fewer debates, the better for the incumbent. I mean, that's why you're seeing, you know, one debate between Blumenthal and uh, Leora Levy, who's um, in a recent poll, like uh, 47, 47 percent among independents, and and she's like a Trump person, so that's mm-hmm. an interesting um, finding in the poll. We'll have to leave it there. Ken Dixon, politics and government reporter for Hearst, Connecticut Media. I hope that was painless. Thank you for coming uh, in. I don't know. My nose is running right now. <laughs> Ken Dixon, thank you for your time on the show. Thanks, uh, Lucy. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Kat Pastor is our technical director. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks so much to the visuals, digital and operations teams at Connecticut Public.